Good morning, ECC. It is good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Acts chapter 1? We're going to be spending a little time there in Acts chapter 1. Um, many of you know we have been preaching through the book of Hebrews, but every once in a while we take a break to do um, a topical sermon on specifically rediscovering church, different aspects of church that whether through the pandemic we may have forgotten or it's just good for us to be reminded of. And today is actually the last in that series and we are talking specifically about evangelism. Evangelism and that, that idea of evangelism carries with it a message. I wonder, have you ever heard a message that changed your life or that you know changed a village or a community? On the 18th of June, in 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte, or if you come from my part of the world, Bonaparte, um, went to fight the British at the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium. Now, in London, not many people even knew there was a, a battle happening. Not many people knew that Bonaparte was now coming toward the British Isles. Some did, but not many did. Now, on Sunday, June 18th, they meet at the Battle of Waterloo. And Duke Wellington, with the British forces, actually win the Battle of Waterloo. But that information doesn't get to London. And all sorts of mixed messages are getting to London. Messages like, we are at war. Messages like, Napoleon Bonaparte defeating. Messages like, Bonaparte is coming to England. And London basically goes a little mad. They go into a form of mourning. They've heard of Bonaparte. They, they, they're scared, understandably, because they'll all come and be turned into Frenchmen. But then, on Wednesday, the full message came. And it was actually Bonaparte defeated by Wellington. Bonaparte defeated at Waterloo. And London burst into rejoicing on Wednesday. That little message that Bonaparte had been defeated, changed their whole demeanor. Previously, there was gloom and sorrow and sadness, but one little message, a few little words, and it changed the demeanor of London and of England, and they rose up and became the great British people. Evangelism at its core is a message that doesn't just change politics or economics. That's not fundamentally what it changes. It changes eternal destinies. And what I'm hoping you see in our few minutes together is the message of evangelism, the messenger of evangelism, and the messengers of evangelism. That evangelism is a message of good news, that there are specific messengers meant to carry that message, i.e. Christians, and lastly, there is a corporate messenger or messengers called the whole church. And what I hope to leave us with is a deep sense of confidence, a deep sense of confidence in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Almighty God, would you help me step out of your way? Would you please speak 
to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so now, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three mental handles, the message, the messenger, the messengers. The message, the messenger, and the messengers. If we are going to understand evangelism and get engaged in evangelism, we need to understand what this message is. That's the first point, because we're only messengers of that message. So what is evangelism? Evangelism, simple, simply put, is teaching the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ with an aim to persuade. That's it. Evangelism is teaching, teaching the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ with an aim or with a view to persuade. It, it was read for us, or, um, prayed for us rather earlier. Romans 10 verse 14 says this, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This message actually has to be explained, heralded, taught. Uh, the Great Commission of Matthew 28 says, therefore, go into all the world, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. The gospel is not congenital knowledge. We are not just born knowing the gospel the way we are born knowing how to cry. Someone has to explain it, teach it, proclaim it, herald it to us in order for us to believe and respond. And when Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, the first and most fundamental thing Jesus has commanded every human being to do, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, are, repent and believe the Gospel. That's the fundamental command we are to, be, to obey. Every other command comes out of that. What is the gospel, therefore? It's great that we are sharing this gospel, that we are explaining this gospel, but we first have to define what is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ to save all who would repent and believe in him. The gospel is the good news of what Almighty God has done through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ to save everyone who would turn away from their sin and trust in him. Here's a simple way of thinking about the components of the gospel, okay? It's four things. God, man, Christ, response, right? God, man, Christ, response. It is a message fundamentally about God, that God is the almighty creator, and that everything he has created owes him worship and love and allegiance. That they are creatures and he is their creator. That God is a loving God. Out of love he created all things. That he showers everything with his love. That this God is a holy God. Incomparable to anything or anyone or anywhere at any time. 
that he's completely separate from sin, that in him there is no darkness. He has no tolerance and no patience with sin because that is marring his glory and destroying his creatures. This God made man in his image. That man was the apex of creation, uniquely created to reflect, display God's glory, uniquely created to engage with God and relate with God. That man is loved by God. That man is not only his image bearer, but his beloved image bearer. But man is a sinner. That our first parents were told, do not eat. And they ate. They rebelled against God. And by their rebellion, every single son and daughter of Adam has inherited a sinful nature. And we are now sinners by nature and sinners by choice. We naturally want to rebel against God. We want to do it our own way. In fact, the main problem with sin is its cosmic treason. That we have set up for ourselves our own kingdom in God's universe. We are trying to rule under his rulership in disregard of his rulership as though he were not king. And scripture says that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. Because our holy God cannot endure sin and must destroy sin because he is good. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the second Adam, to be the last Adam. That God made him who had no sin to literally squeeze himself into human flesh. This Jesus Christ who was fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life. And on the cross, his death was not for sins he had committed or crimes he had committed, but for crimes all of us who would ever believe in him had committed. That on that cross, Jesus was treated like you and I should have been treated. That the wrath of God against my sin and against your sin was laid on him. And it was the Lord's will to crush him so that by his wounds we would be healed. Christ died and rose three days later as proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sin and for sinners. That this same Jesus ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and now offers everyone who would ever turn away from their sin and trust in him the free gift of eternal life if they would respond in faith and repentance. If they would turn away from their sin and say, I'm no longer going to rule my life, and trust in him alone, that they turn away from whatever else they are hoping gets them eternal life, whatever else they are hoping will put them in good standing with God and reject that and say the only way I can be accepted by a holy God is by pouring contempt on my pride, contempt on my efforts, and saying, oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through, and trusting in him alone for your righteousness and my righteousness. And for those who do that, they are freed, forgiven, redeemed, adopted into the family of God, and have eternal joy. That's the gospel message. And friend, if you're here and you're just now realizing, oh wait, my going to church is not helpful. If you're just now realizing, oh wait, I'm not sure I've believed in Jesus like that. Then I encourage you, whoever invited you to church, 
please ask them to explain more of this gospel message to you. They'll rearrange their whole afternoon for that. Or if you came alone, ask the person next to you if they're a Christian or a member of this church and ask them, hey, could you explain that gospel thing that the preacher was saying? And they'll rearrange their whole afternoon to explain that to you. Or maybe you're here and you're trying to discover Christianity. You've heard about many different religions and you're trying to figure it out. Well, this is the gospel. This is what we believe. More importantly, this is the only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, not our way. Maybe you're here and you're sadly deceived. You think that I've been a Christian a very long time. I was born going to church. I grew up in church. I've been serving in church. Of course I'm a Christian. What else would I be? Well, friend, nothing else but faith in Jesus Christ makes you good with God. Not your actions. In fact, your own actions are all marred by sin. They're a stained offering that God will not accept. And maybe here you're, you're here because you're desperate today. Maybe life has kicked you so hard, it has dropped you on your back, and you're finally looking the right way, up. Well, if pain is what the Lord used to bring you here, if desperation is what it took to get you to look at the cross, then look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look and live. Because Jesus saves as you repent and believe. For those of us who are Christians, that's the message we are trying to extend. And we are trying to extend that message with an aim to persuade. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we, Christians, persuade others, we persuade others, telling them, be reconciled to God. In other words, we are giving them the true and full gospel so that the gospel itself may persuade them. Or consider Colossians 4, 5 to 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, in other words, those who don't know Jesus, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are gentle, we are respectful, we are winsome when we communicate the gospel because we want them to be persuaded to turn and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Note, I said we want to persuade, not that we want to manipulate. Those are not the same thing. Persuading is something God the Holy Spirit does himself. Manipulating is something you and I can do very easily. Persuading is something that God the Holy Spirit does when he takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and fills our hearts with himself so that we may desire and devote ourselves to God. Persuasion happens when we give the full truth of the gospel and the Spirit of God uses the gospel of God to bring the elect of God to himself and give them eternal life. Manipulation? Believe in Jesus and you'll become a millionaire. Manipulation? Believe in Jesus and you'll finally get a wife. Believe in Jesus and, and you'll get some other thing better than God. But friend, the whole goal of the gospel is to bring you to God. What do you get when you get God? God. You get him better than anything else that can be offered in any possible universe that could exist. That's the gospel. If that's what the gospel is, here's what the gospel is not. The gospel is not just believe in Jesus. That's easy believism. That I can believe in Jesus and kind of do my own thing out here. 
actually know that will relegate you to a life of deception where you think me and God are good because I mentally agree that Jesus is good, Jesus is God, Jesus is the, the second person of the Trinity, great. That doesn't mean you have trusted in Jesus and turned away from your sin. The gospel isn't just believe. The gospel isn't also just repent, live a moral life. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. Yeah, that just makes you legalistic and moralistic. It makes you no different from a very highly moral atheist. The gospel isn't just believe, it's not just repent. The gospel isn't just God is love. He loves everyone, everywhere, all the time. All paths lead to heaven. No, the gospel is extremely exclusive. Because for those who trust in Christ, he calls them his bride. And he doesn't have different ways of you becoming his bride. One way, turn away from sin. Trust in Christ. Throw ourselves upon his mercy. The gospel is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to become a sin offering on our behalf so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. And here's the good news about the good news because that's what that word gospel means, right? In fact, the word gospel, the Latin word for that is evangel. Sound familiar, right? Evangel means good news, so evangelism is gospelism. It's sharing this message. The good news about the good news is Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. The good news is the power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. It is the power to save from the penalty of sin. It is the power to save from the power of sin. The gospel creates new life that helps us walk away from sin. It is the power that will someday free us from the presence of sin. It's the power to sanctify. So, so let me press in on you, friend. Have you believed this gospel? Is it producing the new life that Jesus said it should? Have you tested or examined yourself to see if you're actually, truly in the faith. And that suggestion is not from me. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 1 to 5. Paul talking to the Corinthians, Paul talking and seeing how their lives were almost indistinguishable from the world, tells them, this is the third time I'm coming to you. I warned those of you who sinned before and all, all the others, and I warned them now while absent, examine yourselves to see whether you are truly in the faith, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. The gospel not only saves and sanctifies, it sustains us and safely brings us home. Because he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. This is our message. It is the power of God. Evangelism is teaching this powerful good news of the salvation that can only be found in Christ. Which means if that's the message, then the messenger should carry that message in all its entirety. Which brings us to our second point. If evangelism is teaching the powerful good news of Jesus Christ with an aim to persuade, 
then the messenger, if that's the message, then number two, the messenger, for the messenger, evangelism is simply being faithful to our God-given personal duty to communicate that message. That's it for us. The messenger's only job is to be faithful to this God-given task. Remember in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go make disciples. You'll see that same pattern in the book of Acts that we just read, that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. You know what you never see in the book of Acts? Angels preaching. You never see angels communicating the gospel. And if we're honest, isn't that like, wouldn't that have been a better strategy? I remember reading, reading the book of Acts when I was younger and seeing all of this angelic activity and being like, man, it would be more effective if an angel just showed up, right? Think about the person you've been praying for for such a long time and he's so stubborn against the gospel. Wouldn't you like an angel just to show up in their bedroom? Just once. Full of fire and wings and terror and they go, okay, yes, yes, I believe. Right? Yeah, but that's not God's strategy. <laughs> the privilege of communicating the gospel wasn't given to angels. Angels would happily give up their wings to tell others about the one who they know. But that privilege, that duty, that responsibility was not given to them, it was given to us so that we may engage in the ministry of reconciliation. And that's what scripture says. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 5. 17 to 21. Everyone knows 17. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Listen to verse 18 and following. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And here's the clincher. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christians, we are God's plan A for rec reconciling the world to himself. And he doesn't have a plan B. We are it. We have been entrusted. Think about God entrusting us with this. He has entrusted us little weak, dinky things. He has entrusted us with the most powerful message in the world. The only message that can make dead people live. That's been given to us, and it is our personal duty to fulfill that. Because, I don't know if you know this, when you and I trusted in Christ, we immediately became soldiers of the king's army. That's how it works. The minute you trust in Christ, you become a soldier. Philippians 2.25. I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Now, fr from what we know about Epaphroditus, he was not an apostle. He was not a pastor. He might have been a deacon, but unlikely. He was just a guy <laughs> that the church had sent to Paul. And what does Paul call him? My fellow soldier. Evangelism 
is spiritual warfare. And when you engage in evangelism, you're putting yourself, and I'm putting myself, on the front lines of real spiritual warfare. Now, I know, depending on where you come from, when you think of spiritual warfare, you think of people shaking on the ground and frothing at the mouth and coughing up demons. Evangelism is spiritual warfare. Because what are you doing in evangelism? You're walking into Satan's kingdom saying, I'll take that, thank you, and you go. <laughs> You're plundering his kingdom. He's not just going to sit by and be like, oh, okay, yeah, you can have them. No, he's going to put up a fight. Here's what West Pastor, uh, Aubrey's former pastor, says about evangelism. What is the overriding goal of spiritual warfare? To plunder the enemy. Spiritual warfare is about rescuing sinners enslaved to Satan and his kingdom. It's about conversion, the transfer of precious souls from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. <laughs> we are plundering Satan's kingdom every time we engage in evangelism. So no, you don't have to be the fifth amazing apostle in the world to engage in spiritual warfare. Every time you open up your mouth to share the gospel, oh yeah, you're engaging in spiritual warfare. And like any soldier, we need to be prepared for the battle. We need prepared hearts, we need prepared minds, and we need prepared feet to carry this message of the gospel. We need hearts that are prepared by love for God and love for the lost. The best soldiers are always motivated by love. Think about it. If you are fighting a real war, and on your right side is a guy who's fighting for king and country, he loves the king and country and wants to protect those who are, he has left back home, and on your left is a guy who thinks the uniforms are cool and he likes guns. When the bullets start flying, who do you think is going to stay? Exactly. <laughs> In the same way, when we are motivated by love, when it comes to the hard work of evangelism, the only thing that will keep that going is a love for God and a love for the lost. It's what we see with Paul in Athens, in Acts chapter 17. Throughout the book of Acts, Paul has been going to synagogue and synagogue and speaking, speaking the gospel there and synagogue. In Acts chapter 17, he changes tactic. And scripture says he walked into Athens and he saw all their false gods and all their false idols. And the Bible says... He was provoked in his spirit. And what that means is two things. He was angry because he saw God being robbed of worship. That all these creatures who are supposed to be worshipping God were not worshipping him, but instead worshipping dumb, blind, deaf idols. But at the same time, that word provoked means he was grieved because he saw lost sinners who didn't know any better. And he opened his mouth and said, I'm not going to go to the synagogue. He went to the marketplace. He went to the streets. He went anywhere and explained the gospel. He taught the gospel. In fact, one of the ways we know he taught the gospel is because the Bible says when he taught the gospel, the Athenians thought he was talking about two gods, a male god and a female god. A male god called Jesus and a female god called the resurrection. Because in Greek, the, the word for Jesus is Yesu. And the word for resurrection is Anastasia. So they're like, oh, you're preaching two gods. And he was like, no, no, no. Let me teach you. Let me explain. Paul in Athens is not acting like the mighty apostle. Paul in Athens is just being a Christian. He's saying, these guys don't know. I need to tell them. Motivated by love for God's glory and love for the lost. We need our hearts prepared in the same way. We also need our minds prepared. Minds that know the word of God 
and minds that know the world around us. Minds that know it is the word of God that has commanded us to know the gospel and go with the gospel. We are not confused. We are clear in our presentation of the gospel. But we also know the world around us. Now, you might be there thinking, okay, how am I possibly going to know every nook and cranny of every culture in the world? Paul didn't know every nook and cranny of the Athenians. What he did know is what the Bible says about every human and about every culture. That every human and every culture ever created in the history of man is suppressing the truth. Romans chapter 1. Every culture in the world is darkened in their understanding and futile in their thinking. They think they know everything, but they actually have no light. And the task of evangelism is to bring light to them. Prepared hearts with love, prepared minds with the word and the world, and prepared feet. Because the truth is, whatever direction my heart and your heart and my mind and your mind is set in, our feet will eventually follow. Right? In fact, a good example of that is in Ephesians chapter 6, when we are given that full armor of God, when we are shown that we are spiritual soldiers engaging in spiritual warfare. You know what we are wearing on our feet? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That a spiritual soldier is rushing to share the gospel. Their feet are ready to share the gospel. Because they love those they're sharing it with. They love the God who saved them and wants to save others. Their mind understands this is the only thing that will save you. Their mind understands you need this even though you don't know you need this. Let me ask a question. Do me a favor. Think about the person you love most in this world. Or two or three people you love most in this world. Okay. Now, have that person in mind. Let's pretend that one day they were involved in a horrible accident, an explosion, and they lost their ability to hear. Would you learn sign language to communicate with them? Yeah. Would you ever say to yourself, ah, but that thing looks awkward, I don't want to look awkward, learning will be awkward. Would, you, would that even come to your mind? Like, no, I'm to learn sign language so that I can communicate with the person I love. Friend, when we love the lost, we will learn the gospel and communicate it with them. When we are motivated by love, we are not going to tell ourselves, ah, but, but I, I, don't know, I don't know what to say. Right? And I, I understand. I understand that the first thing that assails us when we think of evangelism is fear. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of? Is it a fear of man? Because the Bible says perfect love drives out fear. Your love for them will supersede whatever fear you have. Are you, are you scared that, oh no, I look dumb in front of them, they won't think I'm like cool, like I'm one of them, like I'm in the in crowd? Let me help you. You have never been cool. You are currently not cool. You will never be cool. Just accept it and move on. Do they think you're dumb? Yes, they do. Just accept it and move on. Because we are called aliens in this world. We are called strangers to this world. Strangers, generally speaking, are not cool. So whatever fear that is of how people will perceive you, move on. Your love for them supersedes even their darkened and futile understanding of you. Your love for them 
should supersede that, where you just say, I know you don't think I'm cool, but I love you anyway. And I'd love to explain the gospel to you. Maybe for you, it's not only fear. You're like, okay, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. Pastor, where do I start? How do I start explaining the gospel? Do you know John 3.16? Yes? Then you know everything you need to know to share the gospel. It's that simple. If you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, share that. And if you want to move to like master's level amazingness in evangelism, remember John 3, not just 16, but, but verse 17. I think if verses were people, John 3, 17 would feel really bad because everyone always remembers 16 but not 17. Verse 17 said, For the Son of Man came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him. And if you want like PhD level evangelism, memorize verse 18, which says that the world already stood condemned because they have not believed in the Son of God. But for them who believe in the Son of God, they are no longer condemned. Do you see? You have everything you need to share the gospel. Hey, I'll do you one better. In your bulletin, if you look at the back of your bulletin, there's an eight-week series there through the Gospel of Mark. If you're trying to figure out, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to share, just go to that bulletin, find your friend who doesn't know Jesus, and say, hey, would you be okay with reading through the Gospel of Mark with me? And read through those passages of Scripture, meet once a week with him or her, and answer the questions there. You know what will do all the heavy lifting as you read through the book of Mark? The book of Mark, it will do all the heavy lifting for you. God himself will communicate the gospel to your friend or to your family member. Because as Pastor Cass says, if the results of evangelism, or rather since the results of evangelism are entirely up to God, then the only way to fail at evangelism is by not doing it. Or put differently, you can't fail at evangelism if you have the gospel. God is the one who will determine who gets saved, when they get saved, that, that's on him. Your only job is communicate the gospel, communicate it winsomely, communicate it respectfully, and you can't possibly fail at evangelism. It's not your job to close the deal. It's not your job to save people. That's God's job, and he's pretty good at it. Your job, my job, is merely to communicate the gospel that we communicate the gospel with character and conduct that is worthy of the gospel, that we are living lives worthy of the gospel so that our words to these people are matched by our lives in front of these people. That's what the Bible says when it says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, Ephesians, 1 Peter chapter 5, so that as others see our deeds, they'd glorify our Father in heaven. We communicate the gospel clearly, with character, with conduct, and we communicate the gospel conscious that in the world, there are only two groups of people, those in Christ and those outside of Christ. Human beings are the same, whether they are from Kansas, Caracas, or Kenya, they are all the same. The only distinguisher is if they are in Christ or if they are outside of Christ. That will inform how we love them how we treat them, how we speak to them. And possibly most importantly, or equally importantly, I should say, is we pray 
for them. As we prepare our hearts and our minds, as we proclaim the gospel winsomely, we pray. Because the fact of the matter is, God responds to those prayers. If you don't know where to start, here's a good place to start, as Jonathan Sinas says. Pray. Pray to the Lord of, ha- of, the, of the harvest to send out laborers. And don't be surprised if he sends you. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to change their hearts. And that might happen after three years, 13 years, or 30 years. But pray and watch God do his best work. The message is the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. The messenger is you and I, believers in Jesus Christ. And the messengers is the church of Jesus Christ. Evangelism, which is our third point, evangelism is best received when the whole church corporately sends out the gospel in word and in deed. This was never designed to be a solo show. The whole church. Remember this thing called the church? John 13, 34, 35, a new command I give you, that you love one another. When you love one another as I have loved you, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. The whole church is the best evangelist. The whole church is a heavenly entity inviting people into heaven on this earth. And what we really want to produce in this church, and I pray in every church in the world, is a culture of evangelism in the whole church. We do that by preaching the gospel, singing the gospel, praying the gospel, reading the gospel, and seeing the gospel in baptism of the Lord's Supper. We create that culture first and foremost, most importantly, by preaching the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Friends, it is so easy for a church to preach wisdom and not the word. It is so easy for a church to preach relevance and not redemption. It is so easy for a church to seek the miraculous instead of send out the message. It is so easy to preach preach moralistic, therapeutic deism. Be good, do good, and there's a good God somewhere. Friend, preachers who don't preach the gospel, as my friend says, a preacher who doesn't preach the gospel is like a blind Uber driver. They'll kill you. A preacher who doesn't preach the gospel is like a blind painter or a colorblind painter or a historian with a bad memory. A preacher who doesn't preach the gospel is worth less than worthless. His main job, his sole job, 
is to preach the gospel. Because only the preaching of the gospel saves sinners. And if anyone, whether in this church or the churches you eventually go to, doesn't preach the gospel, if the gospel has to be squeezed out of that church, run. Friends, think about it. If I was Satan, which I am not, but if I was Satan, my whole strategy would just be making sure that churches don't preach the gospel. Preach good things. How to have a better dating life, how to be a good boyfriend, how to have good financial practices, how to be good parents. Those are all good things. It's just one degree off from the gospel. As the old pilots would tell you when they used to use protractors before Garmin and GPS, a one degree difference when you're flying, if you intended to go to Dubai, over time you'll end up in Malaysia. That's what Satan is doing. <laughs> friend, Satan never comes as an open enemy, but always as a friend. Never as an emissary of hell, but as an angel of light. Satan's goal is not to attack the pulpit, but to stand in it. And where the gospel is not being preached in churches, Satan is standing in the pulpit. Because over time, it will be kind of an assisted suicide of churches. And the church will be packed with goats who will make sure that the sheep are kicked out and the church is destroyed. We preach the gospel. And that creates a culture of confidence in and love for the gospel. Two, we sing the gospel, right? We come and sing things like, Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Jesus saves. I was lost, but Jesus found me, found the sheep that went astray. We sing, Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness lies not in me, but only you. So that even in our songs, unbelievers are hearing, oh yeah, actually, I am a sinner. Thirdly, we read the gospel. Let the word of God do the work. We pray for the Lord to save. We pray for the Lord to send out evangelists. We see the gospel by bringing people who have turned away from their sin and trusted in Christ and baptizing them. We see the gospel by giving out communion to those who have trusted in Christ and have an ongoing relationship with him. The drama of the gospel is in the ordinances. And maybe biggest of all, we have a community that has love for the lost and understands our task of evangelism is communal. That when someone comes to church with an unbeliever, and says, hi, this is my friend, they're kind of exploring Christianity, they're trying to figure out that our reaction is not like, okay, and then we leave them. Such that the only person that unbeliever talks to is you. The only person who they have any interactions with is you. Because I guarantee you, if you say, hey, want to come to church next week, they'll be like, yeah, I'm going to be selling land. As opposed to, if you come with your unbelieving friend, and you come in front of someone, you're like, hey, this is my unbelieving friend. They don't know Jesus. They're exploring Christianity. And in their mind, they go, game on. Let's go. They've understood the task. Or they've understood the assignment. And what is the assignment? Hey, what are you up to later on this evening? We're going for lunch. You want to come with us? I'll share the gospel with them. We'll read the Bible with them. We'll have a spiritual conversation like, hey, what did you think of the sermon that was just preached? Because the gospel was preached there. Did you happen to hear him talk about a loving God who died for sinners? What's your response to that? So that the culture of every member of this church is game on. 
I've understood when you said, hey, this is my unbelieving friend, say nothing else. That's the culture we want to breed. So that unbelievers are welcomed and loved, and most importantly, the gospel is communicated to them. So let me ask a couple of questions. Here's my first question. Do you know the gospel? Do you know this message that saves? If you are asked to explain it, can you? If you don't know, John 3.16 exists for that. That thing you're holding in your hand in the bulletin exists for that. Know the gospel. Here's, here's the second question. Will you pray for your friend or family member who does not know Jesus? Here's a prayer you can pray that I guarantee you 100% of the time God will answer. And I give you that guarantee on the authority of God's word. Here's the prayer. Lord, use me to share the gospel with someone. I guarantee you he will answer that prayer yes. Lord, use me to share the gospel. He'll never say, no, 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 no. I have better people for that. He's not going to do that. You're worried about competence? Remember the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? Jesus meets her at the well. She's been hiding from everyone. She comes to realize that this is the Christ, the son of the living God. And she runs back to her village. And she tells her whole village, guys, come see someone who told me everything I ever did. Is this the Christ? Which is a Jewish way of basically saying, this is the Christ. Question, what degree did she have in evangelism? Had she been saved for five years? No. She just met the Christ, loved the Christ, and introduced everyone to the Christ and brought revival in an entire town so much so that they kept Jesus for three days saying, please tell us more about yourself. Are you and I willing to do that? To just good old-fashioned courage explain the gospel? A couple of more questions. Will you and I take the time to understand how to communicate the gospel. Not in a long way. In fact, let me even suggest that you can summarize and communicate the gospel in four minutes. Is, is that a thing that you and I are saying, I want to know how to do that so that by God's grace, he can use me to do that? Last question. Will we persevere in evangelism? That person you've been praying for for three years, Jesus saves. Keep praying, keep proclaiming. That mom you've been praying for, that dad you've been praying for for 30 years, Jesus saves, and he will be pleased to save them if we keep praying and proclaiming. That coworker, that friend who seems so stubborn, I guarantee you all hearts are equally hard, and Jesus saves. Which is why we sing, pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad. And bring the stranger home. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, we readily admit that we are weak things. We have trembling lips and trembling hearts. We have trembling feet. But you are the mighty one who strengthens our hearts with love. So pour out your love into our hearts that we may reach the lost. You are the one who strengthens our minds 
So help us read and understand your word that we may communicate the simple truth of the gospel to those around us. You are the one who gives us courage. So make our feet swift to share the gospel and bring the stranger home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.